Well, good morning. Um, good morning. As Mike just shared, um, my name is Jesse Workman, and uh, my wife Stephanie and I and our uh, three kids, now four kids, uh, since we moved here, uh, have been attending Jericho for about a year exactly, actually. So this, today, last year, we were making our way across Wyoming. Uh, on the way to move here to BC. So uh, I'm a student at Canada Institute of Linguistics. Um, studying there, um, Stephanie and I are members with Wycliffe USA. Uh, we're preparing to uh, head overseas uh, to work in Bible translation. So, so yeah, we've, it's been a privilege, it's been an honor uh, and a joy to, uh, to be a part of Jericho for this past year. You know, we've been in a number of different churches just because we've moved around a number of times and uh, different life circumstances and all of that. And, uh, you know, I can honestly say Jericho's just such a great place to be a part of. Um, it's such a great body of believers. Um, and uh, so, yeah, just want to say thank you for being awesome and for uh, allowing me to speak today. Um, I hope that um, it will be encouraging for you and, uh, and that we can maybe grow together a little bit as we talk about uh, the kingdom of God and warfare. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll uh, jump into it. Dear Father, uh, we, uh, we just bow ourselves before you. Uh, we thank you for uh, drawing us near to you, for allowing us to worship you, uh, God, to uh, fulfill our purpose as human beings in, in being in relationship to you, and, uh, and for the opportunity to do that together this morning and to, uh, to praise you uh, together. Lord, we pray that um, as we look into your word this morning, that, that you would just speak, that your spirit would speak into our hearts, Lord, that you would bring about any change that you desire. And Lord, that we would grow in our knowledge and our love for you. And we just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week we're continuing the series, uh, Your Kingdom Come, talking about God's kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? How are we involved in it? Uh, what difference does it make in the world? What results does it bring? Um, and like I said, um, today we're going to be looking at the issue of the kingdom of God and warfare, uh, specifically spiritual warfare. The fact of the matter is that God's kingdom brings with it conflict. Um, every single one of us, believers and unbelievers, everyone, everywhere is involved in this conflict in some way. We want to understand what the conflict is, how we're involved in it, and what the result of the conflict is and will be. Uh, in his book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, uh, in the preface, C.S. Lewis gives this, this warning. Um, and this is because uh, we... When we're thinking of spiritual warfare, um, we all have ideas about it. Um, sometimes we can have wrong ideas about it. Um, and uh, there's a pastor named Brian Borgman. He says that, that uh, the issue with spiritual warfare, it's such an important issue that it's one that we don't want to get wrong. We want to do our best to try and get it right because there's so much at stake, right? Um, C.S. Lewis says in the preface to Screwtape Letters, he says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So we can fall into error by thinking that there is no spiritual reality that really has any bearing on our existence, that this conflict is irrelevant. We can fall into error by putting too much emphasis on the conflict and giving too much glory um, to uh, the enemy that we're going to look at in a little bit. 
So the text for today is Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. If you have your Bibles or reading devices, go ahead and open to Ephesians 6. So in Ephesians, the first three chapters, um, the Apostle Paul is uh, laying out theological truths, all these theological deep um, exposition. In the last three chapters, he's giving exhortation. He's telling us, this is how you're to live based on all these theological truths that, we pre- that he's presented in the first three chapters. So Ephesians 6 is coming right at the end of this, uh, of this section of exhortation. And he's telling us, this is how you should live based on what I've already talked about. Starting in verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. The situation for the Ephesians, uh, the Ephesian church, uh, Ephesus was a a very large city in the ancient world. It was actually the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Um, And it was a a city that was rife with with spiritual realities, with uh, a a high emphasis on spirituality. Uh, It was the home to the temple of Artemis. Um, The economy of of Ephesus was so wrapped up in um, religion and, uh, and in idolatry, essentially, that uh, when the Apostle Paul came, Acts 19 tells us about this, tells us a story about this. When the Apostle Paul came and, and shared the gospel there, it began to take root. And when it began to take root and it moved forward and it spread, it undermined the economy there. And so you had all these artisans um, who were losing money, essentially, because uh, the gospel is spreading. People are choosing not to continue worshiping these idols. And, uh, and so the artisans and others are losing money. It was undermining the religious uh, structures, the social structures. And so it was causing uh, conflict within Ephesus. Uh, and so the Ephesians were, you know, very aware of the issue of spiritual warfare. Uh, when God's kingdom, kingdom comes uh, and, and it, it moves into uh, our space, so to speak, it brings conflict with it. So Paul, uh, the, the central command that he gives, uh, he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. He goes on to say, stand firm. That's the central command, the, the main command that he's giving us in this, in this section. Um, so the question is, how do we remain standing in the battle? You know, if we're in this battle uh, and he's telling us to remain standing, how do we remain standing? I think the first way that we remain standing is that we remain standing in the battle by understanding the nature of the fight, the nature of the conflict. The Apostle Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, It's not against human beings. So for the Ephesians, even though they would have been tempted probably to see uh, what was happening around them, um, the fact that, you know, there were riots breaking out, their physical safety was being threatened. uh, The battle wasn't against these human beings. You know, the fact of the matter is that what was happening there um, was happening more on a spiritual level um, than necessarily on a physical level. 
Paul gives four descriptions of these, of these spiritual powers. Uh, he says that the struggle is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So there's been a lot of speculation uh, about what does this mean? Um, some people see this, these four descriptions as, as uh, describing four, like a hierarchy of spiritual powers. Some of them sitting above others and, and giving commands and that kind of thing. Some, of them see, some people see um, four different kinds of spiritual powers that act in different ways. Um, I think that what the Apostle Paul is, is uh, actually doing here is, is he's giving rhetorical uh, kind of flourish, so to speak, in describing them, saying against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, describing the same group of, of spiritual beings that is against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our battle is against uh, spiritual forces of evil. Well, this Tuesday marks the 73rd anniversary of the Allied invasion of Normandy, France, um, what we call D-Day. Uh, at D-Day, the Allied forces, um, they sent in before they, they actually did this invasion, they sent in reconnaissance planes in all kinds of different situ or all, all kinds of different places in France, so that the German forces were thrown off. They they so that they deceived them, didn't know where the Allied forces were actually going to land. They knew that there was an attack coming, but they didn't know where it was going to happen. So the Allied forces did these reconnaissance missions. They also sent in air forces to, uh, to bomb the infrastructure. They, um, they bombed the railroads and bridges so that uh, the German armies wouldn't be able to send in uh, reinforcements to the front lines after the attack took place. Well, the Normandy landings were the, f the largest seaborne invasion in the world history. Uh, nearly 160,000 troops crossed the English Channel on D-Day, and another 875,000 followed by the end of June. Allied casualties on D-Day were at least 10,000, with 4,414 confirmed dead. 1,000 German troops died on D-Day as well. Although the actual numbers of casualties are hard to know, the total number of casualties from the entire Normandy invasion were 87,000 British, Canadian, US, German, and French killed, and 463,000 wounded or missing. Like that's just, that blows my mind. Half a million people wounded or missing in this invasion. Uh, it was massive. But it represented more than just a successful military operation by the Allied forces. Uh, although it must be acknowledged that the Russian forces were pushing back the German forces on the Eastern Front before this took place. The fact of the matter is that D-Day marked the beginning of the end of the war in Europe. Although Germany, uh, had con he con they continued to fight after the Normandy invasions, uh, they were essentially always on the retreat after that. The Allied victory, was increasingly becoming inevitable until May 8th, 1945, which we know as VE Day, or Victory in Europe Day, when the German forces surrendered and were finally officially defeated. And for the first time in years, the people of Europe could begin to experience peace, not have to fear air raid sirens or losing their loved ones in battle uh, or any other horrors that accompanied the past six years. Well, that's a physical battle that's familiar to us in, in 
you know, I recognize that uh, we as an Anabaptist church have commitments about uh, nonviolence and about war. Um, and so I share that not to undermine those in any way, but to acknowledge that this is a part of our culture's history. And uh, I think it's a reflection to some extent of the actual uh, part of the spiritual battle that's going on and has been going on throughout history. And we'll see why in just a moment. Uh, with this spiritual battle, I think that there are kind of three levels that we can identify uh, in the way that it works out. The first level is this ongoing cosmic battle between Christ and Satan. And we see this stretching from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning of history, uh, essentially uh, to the end. In Genesis, uh, Genesis 3, clear at the beginning of Scripture, um, just after the fall. So Adam and Eve have given into temptation. They've eaten the fruit. Um, the serpent has deceived them. God is pronouncing curses on, on them because of this. In Genesis 3.15, it says, And I will put enmity, this is God speaking to the serpent, to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This verse is known as the Proto-Evangelion, um, by theologians, and uh, it means first gospel. So many theologians throughout church history have seen this as the first proclamation by God in scripture of how he's going to redeem humanity from the fall. So he's saying he's already at the beginning pronouncing a victory. It's a foregone conclusion. He says, he will crush your head, that is Jesus, will crush Satan's head, completely destroy him, and you will strike his heel. That means deliver a, a non-fatal blow, so to speak. Well, that's at the beginning of history. There are two other points in this story of this, this spiritual war that I want to point out. The one is um, at the middle. So the second point is at the middle of the battle uh, is the cross. Christ's first coming, um, his suffering, death, and resurrection. Jesus went to the cross, and what he did there uh, by dying and rising again, was pronouncing victory over the enemy, over Satan and his evil forces um, at the cross. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made public, public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And notice the warfare language there, right? Triumphing, disarmed. Um, this is part of that ongoing spiritual war between Christ and Satan. And the third point in this spiritual battle between Jesus and Satan that I want to point out is at the end, so to speak. When Jesus returns again, when Jesus comes again, he will finally officially crush Satan under his feet. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about resurrection in this context. He says, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom, notice kingdom language as well, to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy is to, to be destroyed is death. So just like D-Day was um, the beginning of the end uh, for the forces of the enemy, Christ at the cross was declaring the beginning of the end against the evil forces in the spirit realm. Christ will come again and finally crush the enemy under his feet. And like VE Day, at that point, the war will be finally officially over. Brian Borgman, uh, again, in his book on spiritual warfare, says, in Ephesians 6, 
The Apostle Paul is equipping us to live between Christ's first and second comings. So in this passage that we're looking at today, this is what we're finding out. This is where we find ourselves. We're between the cross and the second coming, right? We are living in this declared victory, but not consummated victory point. So how do we live in that, in that, uh, in that area? Um, and this should remind us a little bit about what Tyler Harper talked about a few weeks ago when he talked about the already and not yet of the kingdom, right? So God's kingdom has come, but it's not fully consummated. consummated. The victory has been won, but it hasn't been fully, fully established. It hasn't been fully consummated until Jesus' second coming. The second level of this spiritual warfare that we can talk about is the church's proclamation of Christ's victory and of his complete power over the kingdom of Satan. So the church, in proclaiming the gospel, in proclaiming Christ's victory, um, we are waging war, so to speak, against the evil spiritual powers um, that battle against us. Charles Kraft, uh, as a missiologist, he points out three different kinds of encounters in Christian witness. And uh, I think it might show us a few different ways that this takes place. Uh, the first one that he identifies is called power encounter. So some cultures are highly aware of spiritual realities. For instance, like we talked about Ephesus, highly aware of spiritual realities. And so a power encounter is essentially like a miraculous interaction between God and these um, spirits. Uh, and some, some cultures, uh, spiritism is, is very common, you know, animism. Um, a Wycliffe missionary named Joe Shetler worked in the Philippines uh, with a people called the, the Balangao. Uh, and she tells a story about uh, some spiritual warfare issues that she ran into there. So these people, they saw the spirits as having an effect on every single part of life, right? They, they essentially worshiped and sacrificed to these spirits constantly because when anything bad happened, um, there had to be a reason and they had to consult the spirits to find out why, and they had to give sacrifices in order to make the bad things uh, go away. So sickness and all of that. Well, one time, she tells this story about this. She says, Tekla, who is her, her language helper, and I were working extra long hours as we tried to get the book of Titus translated for the coming workshop in Bababag. Suddenly, a neighbor burst in the doorway shouting, come quick, Benito's son is dying. Benito had just become a believer. Earlier in the week, his aunt had almost died, and just yesterday, his daughter had almost bled to death in childbirth. I called, bring the boy up here. This is the house where the medicine is. They left, but no one came back. Tekla ran to see what happened. In a few minutes, I heard her scream for me to come. I raced down stone steps and through the stone-paved yards to Benito's house and scrambled up the ladder. I saw it all in a glance. The house packed with people, the boy writhing in convulsions in one corner, and his near hysterical mother screaming at the spirits, begging them to accept something in the place of the child's life. We have four pigs, we have ten chickens, we have rice. What do you want? What do you want? Benito wasn't even there. He was off in the forest getting firewood. The spirit medium, old Chalinkoy, crouched in the center of the room, holding her beads and shaking uncontrollably as the spirits moved into her body. The spirits were obviously speaking. The voice was not Chalinkois. Anger welled up in me. I was so furious at what the spirits were doing that I forgot my fears. Every time someone wanted to believe, those spirits would raise havoc. Without thinking, I shouted at Chalinkoi, get out! 
And all the people yelled back, no, wait, the spirits haven't said what they want yet. I yelled at her again, get out, leave. The people screamed back at me again, wait. In frustration, I gripped the old woman's shoulders and pushed her over the door and resolutely down the ladder. I took a deep breath, then turned to explain to the stiff and silent crowd, I'd never do anything like this under different circumstances. The spirits are doing this to Arsenio because Benito has said he wanted to follow God. The spirits are trying to make him sacrifice. They're just trying to scare him. You watch, that boy won't die. You'll see that God is stronger than the spirits. He'll keep him alive. So essentially a power encounter is when God shows himself to be stronger than the spiritual forces that are at war against him. Now we as Westerners, uh, as post-enlightenment people, uh, we tend not to think much of these kinds of spiritual forces, right? They're not something that we interact with to the best of our knowledge on a daily basis. We don't see these kinds of things taking place, but uh, I think C.S. Lewis's uh, admonition that, that I talked about earlier uh, kind of has something to say about this. Um, we don't want to fall into the error. Uh, I should say, Satan's just as happy for us um, to think that he doesn't exist as he is for us to think that he has more power than, than God himself. So these people were living in fear every day because they didn't know that these spirits we're in submission to Christ. And what Joe did is she came in and she showed them that God is more powerful than these, than these spirits and he's got victory over them already. So power encounters are one way that, that the church declares uh, victory over the evil spiritual forces. The second way is called a truth encounter. Kraft calls it a truth encounter. So this is when we're confronted with God's truth uh, from scripture and, uh, and, and we have to grapple with it. Um, it's not an unimportant encounter by any means. Uh, it's an encounter in which the mind is exercised and the will is challenged and it seems to provide the content, context within which the other encounters take place and can be interpreted. Jesus constantly taught truth to people to bring his hearers to ever greater understandings about the person and plan of God. To teach truth, he increased their knowledge and the truth encounter, like the other two, is personal and experiential. It's not just a matter of words and knowledge. Well, the final kind of encounter that Kraft talks about is an allegiance encounter. This involves the exercise of the will in commitment and obedience to the Lord. This is really the central kind of encounter in which we, uh, we engage uh, as, as human beings. The initial allegiance encounter leads a person into a relationship with God. Through successive encounters between our will and God's, we grow in intimacy with and likeness to him as we submit to his will and practice intimate association with him. Again, this is the most important kind of encounter because without commitment and obedience to Jesus, there's no spiritual life. The third level of spiritual warfare that I want to bring your attention to is the ongoing struggle in our individual lives against evil and against sin. So yes, the battle exists on this cosmic level, this, this stretching across history above the physical plane between Christ and Satan level. But we don't want to be lulled into thinking that um, just because it exists on that level, that it doesn't have some kind of a bearing or a significance for our daily lives as individuals. 
It holds serious consequences. The everyday interactions of our lives and circumstances and relationships into which God has placed us are relevant and they're not mundane. When we proclaim the truth of the gospel in these circumstances, and when we live out its demands and implications, we're screaming victory over the spiritual powers of evil in the heavenly realms. When we choose not to return evil for evil or harm for harm, when we yearn for God's presence at the beginning, middle, and end of the day, when we handle the relationships with our family members with care and love and self-sacrifice, and we treat them with dignity and respect, when we obey God in moments of temptation, when we say no to sin and say yes to God, when we allow God to break our will and remove the idols in our hearts, whether those are materialism, lust, greed, addiction, anger, self-righteousness, pride, or anything else, when we engage wholeheartedly in gathered worship, when we proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God boldly and lovingly, to those who have not heard that Christ has triumphed over Satan and over sin and death at the cross. And when we invite others to put their trust in and give their allegiance to Christ, we're screaming victory over the kingdom of Satan and we're engaging with the enemy in proclaiming that victory. The purpose of God's kingdom at this very moment and until Jesus returns is to push back the works of Satan by the power that only God supplies for his own glory, and we the church are his ambassadors to do this work. So we remain standing in the battle when we understand the nature of the battle. In verse 14, Paul says, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Paul talks about putting on the full armor of God. This full armor is a picture of the Roman, uh, the Roman armor that, uh, that a Roman soldier would have worn. So there's the helmet, the breastplate, the belt, Uh, The shield, the sword, the, the shoes, all of these things help to protect the soldier in the battle. Just like a Roman soldier wouldn't go into battle without his armor, it would be absolute foolishness. We can't expect to go into this spiritual battle, which we're involved in whether we like it or not. We can't expect to stand in this spiritual battle without equipping this spiritual armor. So we remain standing in the battle by putting on the armor that God provides. So this is a big metaphor that that Paul is using, right? He's painting this big picture. Uh, And I think there's some temptation to look at each of these individual pieces, really scrutinize each one. What is the the helmet? What does that represent? What is the belt? What does that represent? But I think um, we're better off in, in, in this case to look at this metaphor as a whole. So Paul's telling us not that truth is like a belt because... It relates in some way because there's similarity. Salvation is like a helmet because. But when we put on all of these qualities, the focus is on the qualities themselves. When we put on all these qualities, we're protecting ourselves in spiritual battle, just like a Roman soldier is protecting themselves when they equip all the, all the pieces of the armor. 
Brian Borgman again says this. I think this is really good. When we put on God's armor, we're doing more than applying a technique or method. We're doing something personal. We're putting on Christ himself. Since Christ is all sufficient, everything that we need to be covered is found in him. So the first four pieces that Paul shows us are pieces that require us to put, put them on. They're pieces that, um, that require us to do something. Um, the first one is the belt of truth. So what is truth? I feel like Pontius Pilate asking this question, right? What is truth? Well, I think in this case, it can be a life of integrity and truthfulness that is uh, dealing with others in a straightforward way, uh, telling the truth, but it's also God's truth. The gospel, God's word. When we put these things on, uh, we are protecting ourselves. Righteousness is the second quality that he identifies what is righteousness? Well, it could be uh, a right standing before God, right? So w- when God justifies us through the work of Christ, he looks at us and he sees us as righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness. So is he talking about that? Is Paul talking about that? Or is he talking about righteousness of character? How, what is our conduct like? I think it's more the second one in this case, morally righteous living. What are we doing And this is informed by the other kind of righteousness, but what do we do with our lives um, that shows that we are in obedience to God? Righteousness, and we live righteously when we love God's commands and when we do them willingly. The third one is readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. We put it on like, like shoes. The readiness is a readiness to resist evil, which is produced by a knowledge of the gospel. When we know what Christ has done for us, when we know that his kingdom is established and we know that, that he's declared victory, uh, we are more ready to resist evil in our individual lives. That the gospel is of peace means that Christ has purchased peace with God. He has established peace with God for us in the gospel through what he's done. The shield of faith is the fourth object that he talks about. What is faith? Well, it's the act of believing in God and in Christ. Not just acknowledging that God exists, but trusting him with ourselves, that he's good, that he'll keep his promises, and that his will for us is good. And it's giving him our allegiance, even when it doesn't make sense to us and is beyond difficult. Trusting God means firm commitment, not just mental assent. And we all have these situations, I think, when we, our faith is tested, right? Um, you know, we haven't had any major crises in our family, to be honest with you. Um, but one little way that our faith has been tested over the past year has been with our little Teddy. You know, we, um, God's, God's got it all under control. But um, when he was born, we found out he has this condition. And it, and it was like, it was one of those moments where you pick up the phone. I remember when Stephanie called me and, and I knew something was wrong. Like, what's going on? You know, and she says... We got this test back and it says that Teddy has PKU. And, and they said, don't look it up on the internet because you'll just get scared. So, so that was reassuring. Uh, and I thought, so I looked it up on the internet. And, <laughs> and uh, no, but you know, it was a, it's not like, it doesn't have to be life-threatening by any means. It's, um, it's not a big deal, but it is a big deal. It means that there's some changes for our family. And, and when we're looking at this situation, we're thinking, God, what's going on here? 
Like, if you've got this under control, what's going on? You know, we, we, we don't want to look highly on ourselves, but it's like, well, we've kind of given up a lot to get to this point, and, uh, and we don't see where it's going from here. Because, you know, our plan, we're, we're members with Wycliffe, and our plan was to go to Tanzania. Well, Tanzania does not have the medical infrastructure that it would take to take care of this condition. And so that kind of, over time, we realized, well, that's not an option anymore. And, uh, and we just started to look into what else might be an option. And thankfully, we're close to, we we're, we're basically have um, a solution. God's provided another place where we can get the care that we need for Teddy and where we can also serve in this ministry that we believe that he's called us to. Um, but it was a test for us because we're thinking, God, what are you doing? Like, can we, can we trust you in this? So that's just one example of how this has worked out for us just recently. There are two pieces that are entirely the gift of God. That's the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. So salvation, is it future or is it present? And I think, yes, it is. Christ has saved us and Christ will save us. And I think this piece of armor, this salvation, is especially, um, gets especially tested um, when the church comes up against major kinds of suffering. So I don't know if you heard about this, but like last week in Egypt, I think it was 26 Christians were on a bus uh, and terrorists came and, and asked them to renounce their faith, told them to renounce their faith. They did not do so. The Coptic Christians did not do so. And so they were gunned down. All of them killed. Uh, as far as I know, all of them were killed. Um, you know, that, there was, how do you stand up in that, in that kind of battle? Spiritually, how do you stand up when there's a gun pointed at you? And I think one way is knowing that there's a future salvation awaiting you. And this is an emphasis, I think, that stretches across the New Testament. When the church is suffering in major ways, knowing that there's a victory waiting at the other end um, can sustain you. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. What does that mean? Are we talking about are we talking about the Bible? Are we talking about something, something else? And I think, again, yes, but God's word, yes, is, is found in scripture. And um, regularly and habitually reading God's word and striving to understand it and committing it to memory are effective ways that we can grow in relationship to Christ. But something that I've been challenged with, especially recently, uh, especially for some of the readings that I've been doing for one of my classes, is that we can read the Bible. We can, we can even grasp to some extent the words on the page. We can understand that there's a meaning there on a surface level. But the reality is that we can read the Bible and not actually interact with God in his spirit. We have to be turned to him in prayer uh, so that we can be transformed and humbled before God, not simply to gain information. When we, when we put on the word of God, it's a transformative experience with the spirit of God. So when we open our Bibles, I want to encourage you and challenge you with this as well. Don't just read the words on the page, but, but interact with God himself as you're reading. Thomas R. Yoder Neufeld, uh, he suggests that Yes, all these things have an individual interpretation, right? So we're doing these things on our own. But in Ephesians 6, maybe there's a corporate element too, right? So as a church, are we putting on these 
these pieces of armor? Are we putting on truth? Are we putting on righteousness? Are we putting on readiness, faith? Um, and when we aren't doing that on our own, we don't have anything uh, with which to minister to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So the church is able to remain standing in the battle by putting on the armor that God supplies. The final way that we remain standing, uh, I think, is by falling to our knees in prayer. So starting in verse 18, Paul says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Well, we might be tempted to look at this and uh, just kind of see it as something that's tacked on after this list. Like put on all these pieces of armor, Oh yeah, and pray in the spirit on all occasions. But in reality, this, this command to pray is directly attached to the actions of, of remaining strong, of standing firm, and putting on the spiritual armor. Prayer is the means by which God allows us to do these things. It's crucial. So in order for the church to stand, in order for us to stand as individuals in the spiritual battle, we have to pray in order that we can put on the armor in order that we can stand. The Good News Translation, I think, gets it right. Do all this in prayer. Not just pray, but do all this in prayer, asking for God's help. Pray on every occasion as the Spirit leads. For this reason, keep alert and never give up. Pray always for all God's people. I also want to challenge you about prayer. Just like the Word of God, interacting with God's Word, um, we can read the words on the page, not interact with God, not hear the word of God. But we can, also, we can also say prayers and not interact with God by his spirit in prayer. So Paul says, pray in the spirit. Be sensitive to the spirit. Let the spirit guide you in your prayer. You have to do it in order to stand. But finally, um, there's a paradox um, in order to receive God's strength, we must acknowledge our weakness. Brian Borgman again says, our real obstacle to frequent and consistent prayer is often our, our failure to acknowledge our deep need for God or pressing dependence upon him. When we do not sense our weakness, our helplessness, our dependence, and our danger, we will not pray. Having an acute awareness of the war and our weakness will drive us to our knees. And last but not least at all, uh, we have to remember to pray for our pastors and missionaries. Uh, I'm so thankful for, uh, for the pastors that we have here at Jericho. And in order for them to remain standing in the battle, they desperately need our prayers as well. Um, you know, honestly, I think they have a target on their backs. If they're leading God's people in this battle, um, they're going to be especially uh, subjected to uh, the kinds of attacks that are, that are aimed at distracting and bringing, bringing them down. So keep our pastors and our missionaries in prayer. I want to wrap up um, with this. Worship team can go ahead and make their way forward. In Colossians 2, verse 13 to 15, it says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive, alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. 
And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. I love that. Triumphing over them by the cross. Christ came once to declare a victory of his kingdom and he will come again to consummate the victory. Until then, we fight as citizens of the kingdom to proclaim his kingdom and rule over all creation. Well, I'm going to pray and... um, and we're going to sing a couple more songs in worship. Um, there will be people available to pray with you uh, to the right and to the left here um, if you want to be prayed with in any way. And if prayer is the way that we remain standing in the battle, take advantage of it, right? So let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that the victory is secure, that there's no question who's winning this. I thank you that you've purchased victory for us individually. God, I thank you for your word that we fight with, that we, that we take into the battle, for all the ways that you equip us. Lord, I thank you for being everything that we need in the battle. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen your church this week, that we would push back the kingdom of darkness, the works of evil in our lives, in our communities, Lord, any injustice that we see, I pray that you would give us courage and strength in this battle. I pray that you would, you would build your church up to be an effective force in spreading your kingdom and your good news over all creation. And Lord, I pray that you would protect us throughout this week. You are our warrior. Your mighty hand is upon us. And we thank you so much for that. But we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.